All right, as we get set for the first exhibition game uh, for the Jays in Boston today, a lot of people looking forward to their pro sports returning August 1st for the NHL. Um, but it's there, I've just read a really interesting piece um, on the, just the economics of the game. And it's not just about the fact that we're trying to get back to a new normalcy here. Uh, it, it's about the fact that the players are playing and leagues are going ahead with their sports and with their uh, their livelihoods to stem financial losses. They're not going to be getting money from this. They are desperate, desperately trying to avoid losing everything. Here to talk about it, Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University in Montreal, and he teaches the economics of pro sports. So it seems like we have gone to the right man for the topic. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. My pleasure. Okay. Uh, maybe you can just outline uh, and let's start with hockey because you are quoted in the CBC story talking about hockey. How much teams are set to lose if they don't go ahead with the season? Because that's really what's at stake. Sure. So, you know, the way that it's going to play out here is that there's 31 teams in the NHL, 24 of them are going to get a chance to continue on. So seven teams are, in fact, not even going to get to participate at all. Their season ended back in March. And one of those includes my beloved Buffalo Sabres down the highway from you. Um, they're going to lose money this year because they didn't even get the last 12 games of their season in. They certainly don't get the playoffs. Um, they're hopeless. Up the highway in Ottawa, they're done, too they're going to lose money. Of the 24 teams that remain, they lost out on maybe 10 to 12 home games, and they're hoping that in this uh, fanless experience, they're going to be able to make some money from advertisers and meet some of their contractual obligations to provide a certain amount of TV content, that they're going to be able to at least recover some of the money that they lost had they been able to continue on. So, you know, of those 24 teams, there's probably a good portion of them that are losing money and merely just trying to meet contractual obligations and not have to refund money back to advertisers, sponsors, and things like that that we're expecting a full season. So give us some specifics here. Even if play does resume as planned, you say that teams are set to lose a whack of money. Yeah, I mean, part of it also depends on just how far they would have gone. So, uh, you know, I, I said my beloved Buffalo Sabres, I've, I've always had two teams in my heart, the other one being the Calgary Flames. Last year, the Calgary Flames were expected to go deep into the playoffs, and they got bounced in the first round. So, you know, in terms of trying to figure out how much money they stand to lose or how much they stand to make, you know, you're talking about millions of dollars in gate revenue for each playoff game that you can host. That's by bringing in fans. When you're not bringing in fans, then you're losing that millions of dollars in gate revenue because you're playing to an empty arena. So, you know, depending on how far these teams go, first round, second round, or making it all the way to the cup final, you could be talking about them losing out on anywhere between, say, you know, $2 million up to, say, $20 million in just gate revenue. Add to it all of the economic activity that then comes with that and merchandising or anything else that as fans get caught up in the hype, as everybody saw in Toronto with the Raptors, for example, you could be talking about easily into the tens of millions of dollars and for maybe not the Leafs, which are generally a profitable team, but for some of these marginal teams like the, the Coyotes down in Arizona, that could be the difference between being in the black and being in the red. You also talk about how the NHL, and, and let's get to uh, the the broadcast dollars here, that the NHL's already been paid for content, so they're kind of forced to go ahead and play as many games as they can because the broadcasters pay in advance for a lot of the games. 
Yeah, they sign long-term contracts, in fact. So it's not even just like on a year-to-year basis. You know, you'll, you'll see a broadcasting agreement that can go, say, three years, five years, ten years. And that's basically predicated that, of course, nobody could have seen a pandemic coming. Nobody could have seen a, any sort of disruption to the season. And if there were a disruption, we're talking about maybe a game or two games. So usually within some of that fine print, there's this idea that you're going to provide us with say, 80 games of content or 82 for the the NHL and and NBA, plus maybe playoffs, plus preseason. And so, you know, networks are building an entire schedule of how to fit these in. Um, And then they're going off to their own advertisers saying, hey, we can promise you there's going to be 82 hockey games that we're broadcasting on a particular network. Give us money, too. So when they pay up front to the NHL, they're also on the back end getting money from advertisers uh, themselves. And so, you know, once you disrupt the, the game chain, then things start to go into reverse where the networks say, wait a second, we paid you for a certain amount of content. And there's nothing more valuable out there than live programming. It's not something that you can time shift. And so advertisers are willing to pay top dollar for that. And so it just filters back up the line where uh, everybody starts wanting money back if you can't deliver content. When you talk about long-term contracts that are hammered out between the league and the broadcaster, do you think moving forward after this pandemic, we are going to see uh, pandemic clauses being worked into contracts and, and sort of insurance taken out? They already were there. Pandemic maybe wasn't a word that was included in the contract, but there's always things like whether it's a terrorist attack or whether it's some sort of disruption that would have made it impossible. So, you know, like these ideas of like force majeure and these sorts of phrases that are built in that in absolute extreme circumstances, there's kind of an escape clause. The issue is um, for the lawyers to talk about is was a pandemic part of those unforeseen acts of God that could have caused a disruption. And, you know, you're going to have to either deal with lawsuits and a nasty bout of uh, arguing about whether this was foreseeable or not, or maybe try and find some sort of uh, private agreement where, all right, you know what, we're not going to be able to make a go of this. How about we give you some money back or we give you an extra year on the contract or we try and renegotiate in a way that doesn't make a public scene of this. Um, That's probably the more likely outcome than some sort of out front court case of, network suing to get their money back. I think a lot of sports fans are um, just looking at at the return of sports and and very happy about it, but they're looking at players wanting to get back to the sport um, as much as they want to watch the sport. And that might not necessarily be the case. I was reading that Nick Kiprios says that players aren't playing because they want to. They're playing because they have to. And this has to do with the NHL's collective bargaining agreement that they put forward. Now, this is the first time I'm hearing about this, but this is the nitty gritty of, of, of the bargaining agreement. Can you talk about um, how the, the escrow works and how much, if they don't go ahead uh, playing any games, the players actually stand to lose? It, it really comes down to how you think about the way that sports work. So as sports fans, right, what is it that we want to see? The, the end result is we want to see a champion crowd. So whether that's done through, say, European soccer, where it's just the winner of the regular season is the champion of the league, or whether the way they do it in the NHL, where they award the Stanley Cup or the NBA championship, right? The, the idea is that at the end, we want to see a champion. So when the NHL and the players negotiate, what they basically agreed was that we will pay the players for the regular season. And in the playoffs, we'll just put a pool of money out there that you split up based on when you exit the playoffs. So if you get knocked out first round, second round, third round, or in the cup, um, that's the way that you get paid in the playoffs. So essentially the the players were paid in a 
weird sort of way up front. The regular season doesn't really matter for anything other than to establish seeding or ranking. And then the playoffs is for the purpose of actually crowning the champions. So kind of the way that the NHL and the players bargained on this was that the players would get a lot of their money up front for the somewhat meaningless aspect, but they really don't get paid in a conventional sense for the postseason aspect. They just get a pool of money to divide up amongst themselves. So in that sense, then, the NHL is saying to the players, hey, listen, we paid you for basically the, the garbage stuff. Um, you now owe us for the, the stuff where the owners really kind of make their money. And so the idea then of all of this escrow stuff, which is now becoming a, a hot topic, is just the way of kind of how you set aside that money um, as a show of good faith, right? And so the idea is that the owners are saying, we paid you um, on the assumption that you would be around for the playoffs. Uh, you now have an obligation to show up. Otherwise, there's a certain amount of money that we said we would give you for the regular season that maybe we don't feel that we need to give you now. Right. If this season had collapsed and no games were played, uh, Nick Kiprios is saying that uh, some expected escrow could rise as as high as 60%. In other words, players would have to kick in more than half of their salaries next year. I want to ask you, could we see any teams folding if they aren't able to have fans and seats next season? Um. I don't think that we're going to see any teams fold. The last time that a a sports franchise among the big four folded was about 40 years ago. Uh, There was a hockey team, if you can believe it, in Cleveland, and they didn't last long, and they actually just went down. Um, There's a few teams that kind of have some flashing lights that, you know, without fans, they could be in trouble. I don't want to say which ones, just I don't want to create any sort of hysteria. But um, I'm guessing it's none of your beloved yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> Buffalo could be one of my beloved, but uh, that's okay. in trouble. But uh, uh, no, I mean, it, it's the teams that generally aren't doing well, that don't have a lot of fans in the seats. And, you know, you would think that they don't have anything to lose then if the fans aren't already in the seats. But the fact is the fans aren't there because the product stinks. And so, you know, the longer that they go without a fan base being able to recover, at some point it is going to affect their bottom line because the NHL is a uh, gate revenue-driven sort of league. Um I think what you're going to see, though, is that, you know, when there's 31 teams, soon to be 32, um, I think there's more than 32 billionaires out there that would want a little toy like an NHL franchise to own. So I think what would happen is before we'd see them fold, we might see them forced to just kind of sell off to somebody. But there's always somebody who's willing to have that toy um, in their in their playground. So I, I don't think that uh, that's the issue. I, I just think we might see some ownership groups that say, all right, we can't do this anymore. we got to sell the team. Moshe, what a fascinating look at pro sports leagues as they prepare to resume uh, play among COVID-19. And and the lesson is that it's not just that they want to play. They really have to play. It's economics. That's that's always the case, right? Anything that you see in sports, it's always followed the money. So whether we're talking about naming for sports teams or whether we're talking about um, you know, a return from a pandemic. It, it's it's always money-driven, and that's the biggest mistake that we as sports fans make is that we see it through the lens of a sports fan. they got to remember that it's a business, too. And so we hear athletes say that every once in a while, hey, it's a business, man. but that's it. It's a business. And so they're doing exactly what's necessary to maximize their profits. Well, I really appreciate you showing us this story through a different lens. Thanks so much, Moshe. Anytime.